Good morning. If, uh, if all of you were here, I would quiz you. I'd have a piece of candy in my pocket and I would say, you know, we talk about those rhythms of worship, that acknowledging our need and confession and assurance of forgiveness. And then today, what we just focus on, this declaration of belief. And I would say to you, how do we do that today? How do we declare what we believed today? And all you keeners out there would say, we sang that song. He, he reigns. He reigns. Right? We're declaring that. And if ever there was a world and ourselves need to hear that God reigns, it's today. We, we're continuing on in the season of mission. We're actually starting it today. Um, and, and this is a time of year where biblically we look at what happened in the early church. We look at uh, the initial letters to the early churches. We look at the book of Acts, things like that. And in this year of the lectionary, we are in First and Second Corinthians letters that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Corinth. And our plan uh, between Jake and I is to cover First and Second Corinthians in the next 12 to 13 weeks. To do that, we're going to have to cover large chunks of text on a given Sunday. We're not going to answer all your questions about every little detail. We're going to try to look at the big themes but it will help us if when the online bulletin comes out and you have the ability to click and read the lectionary test for that week, if, if you read ahead of time, you'll be more familiar with what we're going to cover. It's going to help us to do that. Um, before we dig into 1 Corinthians itself, though, I want to go back today and start with Acts chapter 18, because in Acts 18 is where you find the story behind the letter. When we approach the Bible, we often subtly read into the text our thoughts and our feelings from our own context. And if we're going to be faithful and honest and intelligent readers of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we have to really understand Corinth. We have to get the backstory of what's going on there. So I'm going to read the story in Acts 18, verses 1 to 18, the first part of 18. And um, it's the story when Paul comes to Corinth for the very first time, and he stays for a while. Most scholars think he was there for 18 months to two years. But I'll read Acts 18, starting with verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then Paul left the synagogue and in typical Paul fashion, went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them, the word of God. And while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, 
If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And so he drove them off. And, when the, and then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. And then just the first part of verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. And then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Now, we have to start by, to get these letters, we have to start by understanding the city itself. It's a large city uh, with a long history before Paul ever shows up. It was founded about 750 years before Jesus. 400 BC, 400 years before Jesus, the population was 90,000 people. And it was a very unique location. It's an isthmus that connects the Peloponnese, which is southern Greece, to the rest of Greece. If you look at this first map, you can see Corinth is on that little land bridge between Greece and southern Greece. Now, this is an interesting place to have a city because from the second map, you'll see that it, it, uh, it actually... Oh, there we go. <laughs> Soft Corinthian lever. Thanks, Glenn. Glenn Ogren's on the video today, you can tell. From the second map, you can see Corinth is right here on this bridge. And what it does is there's an, an east to west trading route that has to go through Corinth. There's nowhere else to go. And there's also two ports, one on the north and one on the south. So this was a city where all the goods and commerce flowed through Corinth. It was incredibly wealthy. Um, lots of wealth and lots of opportunity to gain wealth and also to experience the benefits of wealth, primarily pleasure. It's also the home. This, this thing you see on the background is the corner of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And in Paul's day, this temple up on the, the hill above Corinth employed a thousand temple prostitutes to, quote, facilitate the worship of Aphrodite. It brings a very different and sad uh, meaning to the term worship leader in that day. It was, it was a, a city that was, was bent on sexuality and immorality and wealth and all the things that the world could offer. In fact, in Paul's day, if you were said to be Corinthianizing, that was the word that they used, Corinthianizing, it meant you were performing some kind of immoral behavior. It was kind of the ancient Las Vegas of the world, if you want to, to term it that way. A city of wealth, a city of temptation, a city where Christians who lived faithful to Jesus, would stand out. And so Paul comes from Athens, that's about 50 miles away, and as is often the case upon arrival, Paul makes a lot of connections. He uh, connects with a Jewish couple who've been kicked out of Rome, Aquila and Priscilla. Now, we don't know if they're believers at this point or just Jews. Uh, eventually, they will be believers. They're tent makers. That seems to be why they connected. And Paul was looking for a place to work, and so he began to live with them and to, to make tents with them to support his ministry. And on the Sabbath, he would head into the synagogues to talk with the Jews about the risen Jesus. Eventually, Silas and Timothy show up, which means he can stop making tents. He can start preaching full time. But the Jews, however, aren't always open to him. And it says uh, when they become abusive, he goes next door. And there we see the birth of a new church. The text tells us that the church grew. It says in verse 8, many of the Corinthians heard, believed, and were baptized. And one of the early converts was actually Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. The guy that, that had been leading the things where Paul had been speaking, and then they got so angry that Paul left. Eventually, Crispus comes to know Jesus, which can't help but complicate things. Paul has this vision, too, in verses 9 to 11, 
One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. There's kind of a a foreshadowing. It's an encouraging vision, but there's also this realization that things are going to get rough. I'm going to keep you safe, but things are going to get rough because this church leads to the tensions that inevitably follow. They're not happy. They bring Paul to court. There's a, the, the proconsul there, Gallio, is the brother of a guy you may have heard of, Seneca, the philosopher. And they, they, they bring him before Gallio and they say, look, here's the deal. He's, he's distorting what the scripture says. He's, he's calling people to worship God in ways that are against the law. Well, Gallio said he's a smart guy and he doesn't want to get involved in the squabble. And he says, look, if you guys were doing, if he's, if he's stealing money, if he's doing something horrible like that, that's fine. But, but if you just, if it's a theological discussion, I want nothing to do with it. And he turns them out and, and, and people are so angry. There's a mob there that are so angry. You ever, you ever seen these situations where there's anger and it just has to go somewhere. So since the Jew, Jewish people didn't get what they want, they beat up this guy Sosthenes, who was the new synagogue ruler after Christmas. They beat him up and it says that Gallio didn't even care. And then Paul stays there 18 months, maybe up to two years, and then he heads off with Priscilla and Aquila. Now this is the backstory to the letters we're going to be looking at. This rich and corrupt city, this new church, the tensions between the Jews and the Christians. I would always recommend as we go through new books, if you want more information, check out the Bible Project videos on 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They're very helpful to give you the background. But now we're going to flip over to the letter itself in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. I just want to read um, the, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He also will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you get that first verse? Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. The guy who got beat up is now traveling with Paul. And what, what, what we read here is the intro to one of several Letters. First Corinthians is one of several letters that Paul wrote to this church. We have two of them, First and Second Corinthians in the Bible, but most scholars think there were definitely three and maybe as many as four letters. It's clear from references in the text that there were other letters that were written that we don't have copies of. But his intro to this one conveys some basic truths about how Paul sees the world around him, how he sees his role as a church planner. There's four things that I see in this intro I want to talk about, and then we're going to move in and kind of apply the whole thing to us. But first, in this introduction, you can't help but realize that Paul sees what isn't yet. Look at how he describes the Corinthian believers. In verse 2, he says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Verse 5, he says, You're enriched in every way, in all your speaking and knowledge. In verse 6, 
Our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. What we said and taught you has taken root. It's been confirmed in you. In verse 7, you, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Verse 8, God's going to keep you strong implies that you're already strong and God's going to keep you there. And verse 9, he talks about being blameless. He's going to make you blameless. <laughs> really nice descriptors. Beautiful description of the church in Corinth. And I can see the people in that gathering when they first read this letter feeling warmed by what, all the nice things that Paul is saying about them. But have you ever read the book of 1 Corinthians? Uh, first, the church in Corinth has the reputation of being the most screwed up church in the New Testament. See, Paul, Paul's saying all these things about them. And, and you, you're tempted to say, is he just kind of buttering them up to drop the hammer? Because he begins moving on talking about at least four areas that we're going to kind of structure our sermons around. There's interpersonal conflict, there's divisions, there's sexual sin, there's issues around food and idolatry. There's struggles when they come together as a body, they don't even get along. These guys are not the perfect church. They're far from it. But what Paul begins with, and I don't think it's buttering them up, I think Paul sees them not as they physically are at the moment, but as God sees them. He's seeing what isn't yet. And the key to this practice, to being able to see beyond people's issues, people's actions, people's situations, flows out of Paul's understanding of his role and God's role in what's going on. And I, I want you to get this. The, the reason he can see what isn't yet is because he understands what's happening from the perspective of God. And see, that's where it all begins. For, for Paul, he sees God at the beginning. He says in verse 4, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Not, I'm so thankful I was able to plant a church in Corinth. I'm so thankful you guys are growing. He says, I'm thankful that it all started with God giving his grace to you in Christ Jesus. That's what the initiation of this church always has been. It started with God doing something. What if we could do that with people? What if we could start there? What if our primary orientation as we looked at people was the same way that God looks at people what if when we saw them our first thought was that they're loved by God that he's offering grace to them imagine how that would shape the way we'd see them how it would shape the value that we place on each person if we could see what isn't yet because God has already started something at the very beginning what if there was a voice in our brain that every time we saw a person it said there's someone deeply loved by God who God wants to offer grace today. See, Paul could see with the eyes of faith because he knew God had started something in them. He was at work from the very beginning, but he also sees God along the way. Verse 5, he says, they have been enriched by him. He's, God's giving you words and he's giving you knowledge. Verse 6, that what I've declared to you about Christ is being confirmed in you. God's still at work. He's, he's not just started something, he's continuing. In verse 7, that God has given you every gift. He's, he's, he's taking care of you. He's providing what you need, every spiritual gift, when you need it. Paul, Paul doesn't get overwhelmed with this church with so many issues because he realizes it's not him alone that's doing the work. God's at work all along the way. What if that's how we saw the people around us? 
You know, often our frustrations with other people (laughs) come because we take it on and we feel like it's up to us and things are not happening the way that they should be. What if we could trust that God is working all along the way in his timing in the lives of those around us, that he will not give up, that ultimately he is the one responsible to see that change happens in the lives of people. And then that we can unload the burden of changing others. How many of you have a burden that you carry that just weighs you down because somebody else just refuses to change, to do what's best for them? What if we could realize that God is at work in that and begin to share that load because it's not you that's going to change them, right? And yet we take it all on. And when we take it all on, we begin to be fixated on the problems of what's going on with them and not seeing what isn't yet, what God might be able to do. And sure, we we have a role to play. I'm not saying we just become passive. Look at God, you do what you're going to do. Paul's going to write this entire letter to explain to these people, look, I'm not saying we're passive. It's not about activity here. It's about responsibility. We're going to be active, but we're leaving the responsibility with God. God is doing the work. He can carry the load. When we see people with the eyes of faith, we we realize that God has started something there and that he's the one that's going to be doing the work all along. And this helps us to be filled with grace and patience and to see people for what they can be and not what they currently are because we know the ultimate responsibility is with God. And then Paul sees that God is faithful to finish the task. In verse 8, he will keep you strong to the end. He will present you blameless. It's an amazing descriptor of them, blameless. <laughs> when you read the whole book, when you read the whole letter, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they were far from blameless. And he's going to be hard on them. But he can base this descriptor on the fact in verse 9 that God, who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. He doesn't say, listen up, do what I say. I'm going to lay out a game plan, and if you guys just focus, we can make this thing work. He says, I'm, I, I can see this because God, who's invited you into fellowship with Jesus, right? Remember we talked about that in 1 John, this fellowship we have with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, this, that picture of the icon sitting around the table where we can come and actually share life with Him. He says, God that's invited you into this is faithful. Once you're there, He's going he's to keep you. He's going to finish it. How would it change your relationships with others if you could rest in the fact that God has been there from the start, that God will continue to work, and that God is faithful to finish what he's doing? Now, once again, I'm not talking about passivity. I'm not talking about doing nothing. We're going to engage, but I'm talking about carrying the responsibility for that. We've got to realize that it's God at work. And we do what we can, but it's his, he's the one that's responsible. Paul writes a letter. He writes several, actually. He comes and visits them. He's active, but the whole time he's, he's resting in the fact that God is the one that's going to build his church, just like Jesus said. That's why he can see with the eyes of faith. That's why he can see what isn't yet, because he's, he's realizing that God's the one that's going to complete the work and not him. There's a lot of wisdom for that in us as we interact with other people that we care about, that we want to come to Jesus, that we want to grow with Jesus. There's wisdom in that fact that that Paul says it's God that started it, he's the one doing it, and he's the one that's going to finish it. Sure, participate, engage, 
serve, love, be honest, speak the truth in love, but rest in the fact that it's God doing. And that brings us to where I want to kind of wrap things up today, the truth about Corinth and hope. You see, it's 2,000 years ago, and yet the world of Corinth has many similarities with the world that we live in today. And the question is, how do we seek to build up the church in our world? How does this gospel shape the way we view the world and view the people that are in it? How are we called to live? Well, I love this book, and even just thinking through the text over the past couple of weeks has been so meaningful for me because it reminds me that the gospel grows in difficult places. Corinth was the current day Sodom, is what it was. They had wealth, they had power, they were fixated on sexuality. I love what Gordon Fee writes about this letter to 1 Corinthians. He says, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them. Emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that, here's my great phrase, that required radical surgery without killing the patient. That's what 1 Corinthians attempts to do. See, Corinth was like, it's this broken place. Like us, we have wealth, we have power. Anybody think our society is fixated on sexuality? (laughs) No doubt there. We struggle with divisions, with arguments over our rights. We live in a broken and divided world. World, Have you heard Jake prayer, Jake's prayers each week? Reminder, we live in a world that we need to lift up to God. We live in a world like Corinth. We struggle with the same issues today. And yet God's at work right there. He always has been and He continues. And we can trust in His faithfulness to finish the work. And, and we're called to speak truth into the situation, just what Paul did, but also to make sure that we see with the eyes of faith. We've got to look at the world the way Paul is looking at Corinth every single day. And there's there's two particular ways I want to highlight how we do that. First is in the way that we see other people. The way we look at other people. In 2 Corinthians 5, 15 to 17, Paul writes, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Can we, as we look at the world around us, can, and can we look through eyes that trust that God made and loves all people? Can we trust And look with eyes that see that God loves and wants to offer grace and forgiveness to everyone. Can we begin to see other people from this viewpoint, regardless of how they interact with us, regardless of their actions? Can we begin to look with the eyes of faith toward others? Mother Teresa has a great quote. If everyone could see the image of God in his neighbor, do you think we would still need tanks and generals? Let me just read that again. If everyone could see the image of God in his neighbor, do you think we should still need tanks and generals? And you may say, well, everybody doesn't. Exactly. But the point is, we're not seeing people as created in the image of God, that God loves them, and, and that shapes how we interact with them. If we begin to see people that way, it allows for grace 
and freedom. And we don't have to make other people be different. We don't have to make them like us. We don't even have to fix them. We have to love them as God loved them. And then we do speak the truth in love. We, we speak just as Paul's going to speak over the next 13 weeks. You're going to hear Paul speak some pretty hard truths to these people. But we realize that we're speaking the truth in love and that God has already been here working, that he's working alongside us right now, and that he's the one ultimately responsible to finish what's being done. You see, seeing other people that way transforms our whole lives. It actually sets us free. You don't have to fix them. You don't have to make it all work. You just have to see them the way God sees them. The second way we need to see with the eyes of faith, and this I think is more challenging, is in the way that we see ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.21, just after what we just read, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we look at ourselves, can we actually see ourselves as deeply loved by God, holy, blameless children of God? Jake's video devotional on, on, the, on Friday was awesome because he said, can you actually just get it? That he actually, if you get that, that, that will change the way, the way you look at you and the way you look at the world. Seeing with the eyes of faith about what God has done for you changes everything. It's not some easy believism that says, oh, I'm okay, you're okay, no problem. It's realizing that the truth about us is that we are deeply loved and forgiven by God no matter what we do. And see, when you get that, a lot of people are afraid to go there because they're afraid, well, then I just won't pay any attention to what God says because it doesn't matter anymore. But that's not, how, that's not what actually happens. When you actually get that, that you're deeply loved by God, you start wading into these ugly areas of your life because you think, I'm so loved, I want to clean this up. I don't want to do this anymore. It allows us to, to let Paul's letter to the Corinthians challenge these areas of our lives where the darkness still is, even though we're fully loved by God. And see, it's hard to go there unless you first have that in place that you're deeply loved and forgiven by God. Until you know that, you're afraid to go there because anything that gets exposed about you may make God stop loving you. So you don't want to talk about that. You don't want to be honest about your own self. But once you see that he really does, that in Christ you've become the righteousness of God, that you're deeply loved by Him, then, then you have this freedom to wade into those areas because nothing you find there can stop God's love for you. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, Paul says in Romans 8. I always talk about this at, at weddings with wedding vows. I've done two little 10-person weddings. I've got another one coming up in a month. So it's very intimate when you have 10 people. Um, but, but vows, I always say vows are really, really important because in vows, what you're doing is you're promising to the, you know, some people, I, I have couples that come to me and they've written their own vows and their extended compliments. You're the nicest person. You always greet me with a smile. You make me feel like a million dollars, which is lovely. But that's, I, I tell them, it's not a vow. That's a compliment. And you can pay all the compliments you want. That morning in your wedding, you can say all the nice things you want. But ultimately, a vow says, when you're not any of those things, I'm still here. I'm going to stick around for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. And I say the beauty of a vow is it means somebody's committed to love you despite what rises to the surface. You're still safe. 
And that's magnified a millionfold with God who says, you're, you're mine. I've accepted you. I've forgiven you. We can let the, the ugly rise to the surface. We can deal with it. He loves us. When we get this, when we get that the gospel can't be stopped by difficult places, when we get that God is at work and we let that shape how we view others and even ourselves, we can begin to do this final thing, which is live into what God is doing. See, that's what the letter's about. That's why he starts with who they are and, and how God is for them. He says all these things by faith. Look, this is who you are. This is, I, I see the gifts. I see God's giving you knowledge. I see he started his work of grace in you. He's continuing it. He's going to finish it. And now, he says, because that's all true, we can wade into these dark areas. He can begin to call them to live into what is already true about them because of God's grace. Paul starts by seeing who they are, broken people in a broken city. And then he reminds them who they are by God's grace, called by God from the beginning by his grace, kept led by him right now by his power. He's he's the one working in you and kept by him till the end because he's faithful. That's what God says. He's Paul's shifting their whole viewpoint of everything to say, look, now because we know all these things are true, we can dig into these areas. And that's how he begins to tell them to live into, because all this is true, live into what God is doing. He did the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Many of you memorized this back when we did the Apprentice series. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Stop right there. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. What's he doing? He's saying, this is who you are. He doesn't say, so to be God's chosen people, to be holy and dearly loved, do all these things. No. He says, you are God's chosen people. You are holy. What? You're deeply loved. And then he goes into live into these things. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave, past tense, you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Once again, he, he goes back to who they are. You're already members of one body, so why would we not be peaceful? And be thankful. Let the word of Christ, Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, that? it's that same thing he's doing in Corinth. This is who you are by grace at the beginning, kept by the power of God right now, and, and you will be finished by God's faithfulness to be holy and blameless in the end. God sees you and me as his chosen, holy, and dearly loved people. And he he invites you to see yourself that way, to see others from his perspective, and then to live into what he has promised by daily surrendering your life to his call. That's what we're going to look at over the next 13 weeks. Let's pray. God, forgive us when we take on your job, when we take on your responsibility. We do want to be used by you. We want to be active. We want to speak the truth. We want the kingdom to grow. We want people to to find healing and forgiveness and restoration. We want all of that. 
But help us just to rest in the fact that it's your work, that you're the one doing it. Help us to trust that you will finish what you started. And help us in that grace and freedom to live out what you've called us to. Not as a burden, not as a weight that overwhelms us, but as, as, a, as a participation in what you're doing right now, knowing that the ultimate results will be cared for by you. God, as we enter into this text, it's a hard one. There's hard things Paul writes about. It's going to expose parts of our lives that we probably don't want to see. We just pray that we could always fall back on this fact that we are your holy, beloved children. And we're blameless before you because of your grace. And give us the courage to walk into these areas, to live into what you have already done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I will trust the promise you will carry me safe to shore. Right? That's, that's the hope that we live our lives on. I, I just want to close with these words from in 2 Corinthians again. So from now on, we regard no one, that's ourselves or anyone we meet, from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in, a new, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone the new has come. It's my prayer for you this week that as you look at yourself, as you see the world around you, you'll see it true of yourself. The old is gone, the new has come, and it's potentially true of everyone you interact. And that grace of God that you have received will flow out from you to them because that is what he truly desires. Amen.